want to encourage you, if you brought your Bibles, please find Luke chapter 6, and the last few verses we'll be reading there in just a moment, Luke chapter 6. The title of this morning's message, Why Do You Call Me Lord? Why do you call me Lord? Some years ago, there was a debate that was raging among Christian leaders and preachers and scholars, and it was kind of labeled the Lordship salvation debate. And you had scholars and teachers lining up on both sides of this debate, and they were, they were arguing over something. And they had one side that would say that all that is required for salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. And they believed, because they saw it in Scripture, that the only requirement that Jesus ever set before someone to receive salvation was faith, to put their trust in Christ and what he did for them on the cross and receive salvation by faith. And taken, however, to an extreme, there were instances where some teachers and preachers were saying that even if nothing for the rest of their life gave any evidence that a person had been changed or had truly become a Christian, they were still saved because they had made that decision. And we see that has definitely become part of the thinking of some individuals in some churches. I think it bothers me most at funerals where occasionally over the years I've gone to a funeral with someone who's maybe as a child made a decision, but they have never uh, attended a church, no commitment to Christ, ever seen, ever observed, and, and the preacher, whoever was, was doing his very best to put this person in the best possible light and to try to say that they were in fact a Christian when there was absolutely no evidence of it. People who attacked that position called it easy believism. On the other hand, there were a group of Bible teachers and scholars who were saying, no, there must be not only the root of salvation received by faith, but there also must be a fruit, evidence of transformation, evidence of change. And, and the way that you see that is because of that person's individual commitment to Christ as Lord. Jesus is described as Lord over 650 times in the New Testament. He's described as Savior just 24 times. And, and apart from that visible commitment to Christ as Lord, they would, these teachers would challenge salvation. In fact, taken to an extreme, there was a negative there as well, where it sounded almost as if you had to do certain things to demonstrate that you were a Christian, that there was, there were, there was a level of commitment that you had to, to make. They would say things like, if Jesus is not Lord of all, Jesus is not Lord at all. And that sounds really good until you realize that every person here, if you're a Christian, you have a flesh as well as the Holy Spirit living in you. And can I just remind you that the flesh never gets better. Christian growth is not a matter of improving the flesh. And so what Christian growth is, is learning to walk in the Spirit and letting Christ's life in you 
come out and to govern your thoughts and your behavior and your actions. There's a sense in which both positions have great truth. We receive salvation by grace through faith. At the same time, there is, there is fruit of that transformation that should be evident over time. The entire little letter of 1 John is a description of those who have been born of God. The people who are born of God have certain changes on the inside that will then bubble to the surface as changed attitudes and behaviors and actions because God is at work within. And so there's truth to both sides. I want us to think carefully this morning about what it means when you and I call Jesus Lord. Because in Luke chapter 6, Jesus poses a question that is very important that you and I look at it seriously and apply it to ourselves and to our own lives. Before I read that, we do believe as Baptists that once you are saved, you are always saved. I'm not going to make you repeat after me. I think most of you who have been part of a Baptist church for a while, you understand that we believe in the perseverance of the saints, that when God begins that work in us, he continues it into the final day. And so we do believe that. Once saved, always saved. The question is, have you been once saved? Have you been once saved? And so what Jesus is describing here in this text is very, very important for you and me. Let me use this analogy I think may help you think about it. The, the core understanding of the words for salvation in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, is the idea of a rescue, being rescued. And so if you're a swimmer out in the water and you're having a good day and you're able to float your own boat and you're, you're able to swim and tread water and you're doing fine out there and suddenly you start cramping up or there's an undertow and it starts pulling you out away from the shore and you get scared and you panic and you start going under and you shout out, someone please save me! And a lifeguard sitting in his chair up on the beach, he hears you and he blows a whistle and he grabs his rescue stuff and he goes and he jumps in the water and he starts coming your direction. Now, People who are trained as lifeguards understand that one of the dangers of being a lifeguard is that when people are severely frightened and afraid and panicked, that they can claw you and they can hang on to you and pull on you when you get to them and they can pull you under the water and then, then you're not the rescuer anymore. You become a victim just like the person who was drowning and both of you can drown. And so when a rescuer comes and he tries to help that person, if they're fighting him or her and they're, they're trying to pull on them and grab hold of them and they're just panicking, they won't listen to instructions and they, they won't respond to your direction, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll back off and they'll tread water and wait. What they're waiting for you is to run out of gas. And when you can't fight anymore and all you can do is cooperate and rest in their rescue, then they can reach out for you grab hold of you, and bring you back to the shore. Some of us are resisting the rescue when we resist the leadership and the direction of Jesus Christ in our life. The whole nature of saving faith is to rest your life in his hands, to rest your life in his care, that no longer am I going to direct and control my life, but I am resting my life in him. 
And if he's going to rescue me, I need to cooperate with him. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus frames this whole discussion in this way. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Jesus is asking a penetrating question in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? The logic of the question is pretty obvious. You're calling him Lord, and by the very nature of the word, someone who is Lord is someone who rules your life. And he says, why are you calling me someone who rules your life and you're not doing what I tell you to do, there's a disconnect. Something isn't right with this arrangement. Something is broken. Something is wrong. Jesus' question exposes a couple of things, and I want to build our, our thoughts this morning around this text, around these two statements. Here's the first one. His question exposes the deadly practices of all false Christians. There is a form of Christianity that is false. And we're going to look at the other place where Jesus tells us the very same parable. It's a, uh, in Luke chapter 6, you have an abbreviated version of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus concludes his teaching of the Sermon on the Mount in Luke 6 with this passage we just read. He does the same thing in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You have an expanded version of the Sermon on the Mount. And at the very end, he concludes his teaching with this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? He says that in Luke 6. But in Matthew 7, he expands that. He explores it in more depth. Because there's a kind of Christianity that is false. And, uh, and it's scary. And so to help us understand the difference between a true Christian and a false Christian, he tells this parable. I uh, found something that I want you to listen to. Feel free to sing along. I want you to hear this and, um, and see if you'll get the message that Jesus gives. upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the rains came a-tumbling down. The rains came down, and the floods came up. The rains came down, and the floods came up. The rains came down, and the floods came up, and the house on the rock stood firm. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. Upon the sand, and the rains came a tumbling down. 
that stays in your head all day long. How many of y'all remember that from when you were a little kid? Some, some of you do. Um, how simple it is. And when Jesus teaches us, even a child can understand that there are two different kinds of houses and there's a difference between them. Uh, the warning that Jesus gives us in Matthew 7, uh, when Matthew records what Jesus taught, he probably taught this multiple times, but he identifies at least three kinds of persons who are not Christians and that have been deceived and do not recognize what is happening to them. Uh, the best way to see this is just to look at it. Three marks of a false Christian life. Here's the first one when Jesus talks about it in Matthew 7. People who profess something they don't possess. People who profess something they don't possess. In Matthew 7, 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And so Jesus is teaching that it's possible for you, for me, to delude ourselves into thinking that we're a Christian when we're not. And here he pictures an individual, many individuals. And... Um, and they are saying to him, Lord, Lord. So they're using the right language. They're using the right verbiage. And they're saying, Lord, Lord. And he says, not everyone that uses the right language, not everyone that calls me the right title is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is where he draws the line. Here's the difference between calling him Lord and uh, being the real deal. And he says this. He says, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. In other words, entry into heaven is conditioned, he says, on the person who's doing the will of my Father in heaven. Here's the reality. You get nothing else from this verse. Not everyone goes to heaven. That's hard stuff, isn't it? But not everyone goes to heaven. I don't care how much I love them. I don't, don't care how much I, I want them to or I wish they would or or whatever I'm thinking, or whatever I'm feeling. Not everyone goes to heaven. And there is a, a transformation. There is a difference. And it's not just saying the right things or looking a certain way. It's not just showing up on Sunday. But it has to do with this will of the Father 
and actually being engaged with the will of the Father. So what's the will of the Father? Well, I can think of all kinds of things, I guess. If I was just looking at this verse and not looking at anything else, I, I would think, well, I guess what other Christians do would be the will of the Father. You know, being, being here on Sunday morning, um, going to Bible study, signing up to serve for Easter, which you need to si- sign up to serve for Easter. Um, all those things, you know, I would think would be the will of the Father. When we look at the second kind of person or the second characteristic of a false Christian life, listen to what he says. Not only people who profess something they don't possess, but people who think they are serving God, but they are not. And he goes on and speaks in verses 22 and 23. He says, many will say to me in that day. What day do you think that is? Anybody want to venture a guess? That day? Judgment day, I heard someone say. You betcha. Many will say to me in that day, that day, Lord, Lord, have we not, here you go, buckle up, prophesied in your name? Um, That could be taken one of two ways. Prophesied can be uh, actually telling the future. More likely what it means here is to speak what God brings to mind, and so it would describe preaching or teaching, prophesying. Uh, Have we not prophesied, spoken what you brought to mind, spoken in your name, cast out demons in your name, and there it means to expel demons, to ekbalo, it means to blast them out. I mean, have we not expelled demons in your name and, and done many wonders in your name, mighty works in your name? Now, just pause there for a moment. Jesus said, not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. If I'm thinking of the will of the Father, this is the A-team. Wouldn't you think? Prophesying, expelling demons, performing miracles. I mean, how, how many of all, how many of you done that lately? I mean, this is the A-team. This is, this is powerful stuff. And Jesus says, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I don't know about you, but every time I read that, it's stunning. Here are people that are, they're not outsiders, are they? They're they're insiders. They're part of a Christian community of some sort because they're doing all of this stuff in the name of Jesus. But something is missing. Professing something they don't possess. They think they're serving God, but they're not. And they're sincere when they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff for you? Didn't I show up? Didn't I give? Didn't I serve? And even in their answer, you can hear part of the problem that they're all looking at what they did. I did this, 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 I did this. There's no claiming of the work of Christ, and say, Lord, I trusted you. I trusted you to rescue me. That's not even in the discussion, is it? Something's missing. What's missing? Here's what I believe is missing. A personal, interactive, real relationship with Jesus, who is Lord. Do the will of the Father is not to just go do a bunch of religious things. It's very clear that the will of the Father is more than just religious activity. 
When he says, I never knew you, he's saying, we never had a relationship. I don't know what y'all were thinking, but he said, we weren't together. You and me weren't together. You know, I, I, there's a will of the Father. You weren't hearing it. You weren't doing it. You weren't a part of that. He says, you practice lawlessness. Literally, it means you practice no law. In other words, there was no, nothing ruling your life. I was not ruling your life. You were ruling your life. You were calling the shots. You were making the decisions. You were doing what you thought I wanted you to do. You were doing religious activity. You were doing all of that stuff, but you were never ruled by me. No law in your life. No rule in your life. No one calling the shots in your life outside of you. Do you hear the difference? When you come to me, when you come to me, he says, I am Lord. And when you come to me and you put your trust in me, you're saying, Lord, whatever you want me to do, whatever it takes, I'm surrendering to you, I'm yielding to you, I'm putting my trust in you to save me, and I know you died for me on the cross, but I'm also putting my trust in you that you know better for me, you know my, what my decisions need to be, you have a plan for my life, you, ha- you have a purpose for me, you have a direction for me. And so I know that becoming a Christian then at that point is entering into a relationship with a living God who is Jesus Christ, my Lord. There's a third marker of a false Christian life, and it's this. People who hear the truth but don't practice it. People who hear the truth but don't practice it. As he tells the story of the house and the foundation, he says in verse 24, Matthew 7, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine. Now, he has just told the the Sermon on the Mount in Luke 6 and in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He's told the whole Sermon on the Mount. People, therefore, who hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Verse 26, he says, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. People who hear the truth but don't practice it. All of us want Jesus to be Lord when we're in trouble, don't you? I mean, when that storm comes and Jesus is saying a storm is coming, all of us want him to be Lord over that storm. All of us want him to be a God who is in control. All of us want him to be able to deal with that diagnosis or that that loss of my job or whatever the thing is that's causing anxiety in me. I want him to be Lord of lords, Lord over everything that tries to lord itself over me. I want Jesus to be Lord in those moments. But what about when I'm not getting along with somebody? Do I want him to be Lord then? What about when someone has hurt me again and again and again and again? And he says, I want you to forgive them. I want you to bless those who persecute you. Is he going to be Lord at that moment in my life? When he is clearly directing me to love my wife as Christ loved the church, am I going to let him be Lord of my life then? Or am I going to come here and I'm going to say, yeah, that's what the Bible says. I agree with it. Amen, preacher. Amen, Sunday school teacher. I agree with you. He should be the Lord of my life. He should be that. And I should allow him to be the Lord of my marriage. I should allow him to be Lord of my home. And then I go out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and I do exactly what I want to do and what seems right to me and what feels good to me. And I just do the best that I can to be a good Christian person. 
people who hear the truth don't practice it. We come, and I fear, as, particularly as Baptists, and in Bible churches, we teach and 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 we teach, and people's heads are filled with knowledge. But are we applying the truth? Are we actually living this out? People go around, they say, well, my marriage is failing. No, your marriage isn't failing. Is Jesus Lord? The failure lies in the heart and the foundation of your life. And what are you building your life on? And so Jesus' question is, is penetrating. He sees a storm coming, he, and it's going to be an ultimate storm at the judgment day, but also there are storms of life that come. And that person who has been yielded to Christ, reading what he says, applying it to their life, and they're learning to walk with him, and they're learning to sense his spirit and his promptings and listening for him, and we have this listening, responsive relationship to him, and then the storm comes. And it's the same storm that hits both houses. Neither house is exempt from the storm. We have the same kinds of storms in life as, as Christians that people who are not Christians have. The same storms come into the life. The difference is what I have built my life on and what you have built your life on if you're a Christian is on Christ as Lord. And when the storm comes, he says the house, it doesn't even shake doesn't shake. His question exposes the foundation also of every true Christian. That's the second thing I want us to look at for a moment. His question exposes the foundation of every true Christian. In Luke chapter 6, we're going to go back to Luke now. In Luke chapter 6, verse 47, he says, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. And then he describes the house on a rock. And then he says in verse 49, but he who heard and did nothing is like. And so each of these houses represents a certain way of life. And the, and the great difference between the two is hearing and doing. Or hearing and not doing. In 2007, there's a news report that circulated in Reuters describing a man who had come home from shopping in northern Germany, came home to his house only to see and be greeted by a 40-ton truck that was halfway into his house. It had run off the curve in the road. He built his house in a curve, and this 40-ton truck had run off the curve into his house. And this was the 10th time somebody had run off the curb into his house. These were his words. And I won't mention his name because I don't think he's too bright. He said, if we stay, someone's eventually going to kill us. We're living in a time bomb. The damage was almost 200,000 U.S. dollars. I mean, it was, it was huge. 40-ton truck, boom, into the house. Location, location, location. And Jesus is describing the same kind of scenario, isn't he? He's saying there's a way to live your life in a way that is dangerous and deadly to the human spirit and soul, and there's a way to live your life which enables you to withstand any storm that can come your way. Which kind of house are you living in? 
See, the thing that Jesus points to is the foundation. One guy digs deep and he builds his house on a rock. And I can't see the foundation of your life. I mean, outwardly, these houses will look a lot alike. I can't just as an individual looking at your life, I I really can't ultimately pass judgment about what the foundation of your life is. Only you can see it. But I do know this, that Jesus is teaching us that depending on what kind of foundation you have, it determines everything else about your house. It sets up everything else. And you can build and build and build all you want, and you can look good and sound good, and you can be the best kind of person morally. You can do all that kind of stuff. But if your house is not built on the foundation, the rock, which is Jesus Christ and what he said and doing what he said, you're not going to survive the storm when it comes. So what's below the surface is something only you can see, only you can pay attention to. And if I don't get that part right, nothing else about the house is right. Are you building your life on? I want to ask you a series of three questions that come from this text. I think the natural question would be, how do I know that my foundation's right? I don't know, I don't know about you. This is really a, a hard message to preach. I, I think if you know me, I like to encourage people. The possibility that someone could be sitting here listening to me week by week, the possibility that there could be someone here who is deceiving themselves and thinking that they have a relationship with God and they do not, is very disturbing to me. And it should disturb you. So as your brother in Christ, I'm going to just ask you, please, to look at your foundation. I want to ask you these three questions, not to give you things to be doing, but I want to ask these questions in such a way that, that Lord willing, His Holy Spirit might use it and shine a light on what's there or what's not there. Because again, I, I can't see your foundation. That's between you and the Lord. I, and so here are the three questions I want to ask, and it comes right out of verse 47. Are you building your life on, first, a love for Jesus? A love for Jesus. In the first part of verse 47, Jesus says, whoever comes to me. And I love that because he immediately sets up the whole issue and helps you understand the problem. Whoever comes to me. It's not about joining a church or becoming part of a particular denomination. It's not about subscribing to a certain belief set and say, well, I believe in the Baptist faith and message, or I believe in the Apostles' Creed, or I believe all these different things. It's not about a creed or a certain set of beliefs. Those things are valuable, and church was his invention. But becoming a member of the organized church is not what we're describing here. He says, whoever comes to me. This was the thing that was missing in Matthew 7, wasn't it? Depart from me, I never knew you. They had never come to him. They had gotten religious. They had gotten something. They may have walked an aisle. They may have shook the preacher's hand. They may have been baptized a dozen times. It doesn't matter. These individuals in Matthew 7 had never come to Jesus. And in this, he is answering the question, 
Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? I mean, the answer is, is implied in what he says, whoever comes to me. But it's even made more clear in John chapter 14, verse 21. It'll be on the screen, and it's noted in your notes. John 14, verse 21. Listen to what Jesus says. This is the answer to the question, why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I say? Here's the answer. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. In verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. In verse 24, he says, he who does not love me does not keep my words. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, not do the things that I say? You've never come to me. You don't love me. You don't love me yet. You don't know me at that level. When you love me, then you call me Lord, Lord, and do the things I say. And so the thing that, that is most needed in your life is not for you to begin trying to be a better person that you are and try to keep more of the rules that you believe Christians keep and not to be more precise in your your understanding of obedience, the starting place when you have blown it and when you realize I'm not walking with God and I, I don't know Him. And the, the starting place is to come before Him and learn who He is and fall in love with Jesus. Tommy Vinson was our guest speaker this week for our Ignite Conference. And he made reference in passing to the Apostle Peter and what Jesus did with him after Peter had denied him three times. Do you remember what Jesus did with him? After the resurrection, they met on the shore. And Jesus went up to him and he said, Peter, don't mess up again. Is that what he said? Did he go up to him and say, Peter, try harder next time? Is that what he said? No. Peter, you need to get yourself into a class on how to be a better Christian. Jesus didn't say any of those things. What did he say? He asked him three times the same question. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? When your life is, is off the rails, when you're looking at your life, even as a Christian, and you realize that I've, I've had a good run of disobedience here, and I, I have blown it, I have messed up. The answer is not to throw it, to go back and be a better person. The starting point is to go back and realize that I lost my love for Jesus, and I need to go back to Him and fall in love with Him again. What, who He is, and what He's done for me, and how He offers Himself to me, and how he indwells me as a Christian, and He's offered me not just forgiveness, but a new life, a power, Christ in you, to live out this life. Do you love Him? That's where the, the house meets the rock. Do you love Him? Second thing, second question I would ask, are you building your life on secondly, an attentiveness to Jesus. An attentiveness to Jesus. He says, whoever comes to me, and then he says, and hears my sayings. 
Here's what I'm saying. Here's my sayings. Now, we can't stop there, but we do need to pause there. Because growth, obedience, yieldedness to the life of Christ, yieldedness to Him as Lord, all those things are dependent on His capacity to speak truth to my heart. And He's been teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, he's not laying out. He's not doing just a reiteration of the Ten Commandments. He says, you have heard it said, for example, you shall not commit adultery. And so our first response is, okay, I haven't done that. Doing good. Check that one. Okay. But he says, he says but I say to you. The moment he says, but I say to you, I, I got to be listening. Because suddenly he's telling me something that takes the law and it's, gonna, it's about to come to life in a new way. He says, he says, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. He said, but I say to you, if a guy looks in a woman, even to lust after her, to desire her in a wrong way, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm not, I'm not telling you just to stop committing adultery. I'm not telling you to avoid adultery. He's saying, I want you to be the kind of man who doesn't even lust. I want you to become the kind of man that when my life is in you and flowing through you, that you are, you're the kind of person that doesn't even want to do those things. I want you to be so possessed of me, so full of me, that it changes your wants and your desires. And so as you and I are sitting and we're listening to sermons and we're sitting in a Bible study group and we're listening to a Sunday school teacher, there are times when, and, it, and, and this should be a regular occurrence, where we're listening to the lesson. You know, the teacher may not even be excited about the lesson, but we're listening to the lesson. And in the course of it, the Holy Spirit takes that truth and causes it to burn in our heart and in our mind. And we realize in that instant that I'm not just hearing a Bible lesson I am hearing the voice of God in my soul. And, and at that point, when I begin to hear Jesus speaking to me, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm hearing that, my, what I'm going to do next is very important. We're going to look at that. But, but, my, but my experience of that is part of what it takes for my house to be built on the rock. And so here, here's how I would encourage you to think about this. When, when you come in here on Sunday morning, when you go into a Bible study group, when you hear some, somebody teaching on the radio, whatever your avenues are and channels, podcasts, whatever, that you're listening to, are you listening to whoever happens to be teaching or are you listening for the Spirit of God to speak to your heart? There needs to be an eagerness and a love for the Word of God. And, and you and I want to cultivate that we want to fan that we don't want to quench that we don't want to pour water on that we want that that spark that interest we want to fan that and more than ever i want our church to be a word-centered church i mean we can sing and sing and sing to the cows come home but jesus is not talking about singing he's talking about hearing and hearing him speak 
his word, my sayings. Do you love the word when he speaks? And then the third question I would ask is this. Are you building your life on a responsiveness to Jesus? Are you building your life on a responsiveness to Jesus? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, (laughs) and does them, uh, literally, and is doing them. The moment you recognize that Jesus is speaking to you, what you do next more than anything else that happens, describes whether your house is built on a rock or on the sand. The moment you recognize that the Lord is speaking to your heart, your responsiveness to that says more about you and your foundation than anything else that could be said. Your sensitivity and readiness to apply it, to do it, to explore it, to understand it, and then to work it into your life, to, to, to say, yes, Lord, I hear what you're saying to me. I was, uh, after one of our services this week, uh, Tommy had preached about the Holy Spirit and how he, um, he speaks to us six words that will change your life. And, and he talked about quench not, grieve not, and be filled. And uh, I had an older brother come up to me after the service, and he said, Brother Don, he said, I remember a time years ago when after a sermon like that, the altar would be filled. Because of the responsiveness and the sensitivity of the congregation at that time that he was seeing to the Word. And it's not just about coming forward. You know that's not what we're talking about. But it's a responsiveness. You know, when God leads you to do something, when you know that he wants you to serve in a particular area. Uh, the Bolins are here today. They're missionaries um, in South Asia. And you and I are missionaries to Northeast Arkansas. And, and when we have a sense of calling about that, it makes all the difference in the world when the storms come and when the troubles and difficulties come. Let me explain. If, um, if I'm doing things for God, and I'm doing things for him, and, and he hasn't sent me. I'm just doing things for God. You know, the, the preaching, the casting out demons, performing miracles, and so forth. And trouble comes. What do we do? Well, poor pitiful me. I'm just miserable. Uh, I'm out here. I, I'm, I'm serving God, and nobody appreciates it. Nobody cares. And Nobody says thank you, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And we're just, we're just kind of, we get pitiful. And, and, and when that trouble comes, and whatever it is that comes at you, some hard times, some difficulties, some, some criticism, whatever it is, uh, our tendency is to fold up. I don't know what the rate is now, but uh, there was a very high percentage some years ago, missionaries that would go overseas, and they wouldn't last one term. They wouldn't last one term. When he speaks, then you are sent. And when you are sent, you are doing what God told you to do. You're doing what God led you to do. You're doing what God called you to do. And come hell or high water. And this is where it comes from in the text, that saying. Whatever comes, 
It's okay because I know that God called me to this place. He called me to do this task. He called me to serve this person. He called me to work with that particular group or whatever the case may be. And that that sense of being sent and called enables you to do things when other people would quit. And the storm comes and it rises up on the house, but the house, it doesn't even shake. Doesn't even shake not rattled, not even a single window pane rattles. Why? Because I've been called. My house is built on a rock. My life is about receiving direction and following directions, not just doing things for him. In James 1.22, he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And again, we have that danger of accumulating truth, accumulating facts, accumulating Bible knowledge, and not living out a spirit-led or spirit-directed life. So be very careful how you respond when he speaks. Be very careful how you respond when he speaks. Be tender-hearted towards his voice. Be sensitive. Let the movement of his spirit mark your soul. One of the great illustrations in my mind is when our, our hearts are hard and not responsive. And we can cultivate a tender heart, but when our hearts are hard and not responsive, it's just like a field that's, that has been lying fallow. And the dirt is hard and the surface is hard. And, and I can go out there and walk across that field all day long and you may not be able to see my footprints because the ground is so hard. But if you go up and you break up the fallow ground, as Jeremiah talks about, Jeremiah 4, you go out and you plow it up and you break it up and you aerate that soil and you get it soft and loamy and it's, and it's thick, but it's soft. And if I go out and walk across that field, you're going to see every footprint I make. It's just going to be so clear where I walked. And you know, I want us to have that kind of tender heart as the people of God. I want it to be to where if the slightest whisper of his Holy Spirit blows through this congregation, he leaves a mark on every heart. Bottom line. The bottom line is this. My eternal destiny is revealed by by the genuineness of my relationship with Jesus. My eternal destiny is revealed by the genuineness of my relationship with Jesus. I haven't just joined a church. I become part of his family. When you trust Christ and you've abandoned yourself to him, you've let the lifeguard come and rescue you, and you've gone limp in his arms and you've said, whatever you want, just tell me what to do. Whatever you need me to do next, Lord, just tell me what to do. I know you got the plan, and I know you can get me out of this situation I'm in. Just lead me, Lord. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God, it says in Romans 8. So let's be sensitive to him. Be responsive to him. We're at the moment in our service where we have a time of response. We call it an invitation. And there'll be pastors standing at the end of each aisle. I'll be down front as well. And if the Lord has spoken to you and you want one of us to pray with you or to counsel with you or talk with you, we're here for that purpose. Uh, The altar is also open. And uh, if you have a burden for yourself or someone who's dear to you, uh, this is to be known as a house of prayer. This is a place where people will pray for you, pray with you, 
And I'd encourage you to come if you just have a great prayer need and you want someone to pray with you. Uh, but according to your need, would you respond to him? If you've never trusted Christ and you realize now what's missing, I want to encourage you today without shame or hesitation to step out, whether you're in the balcony or down on the floor, and say, I'm trusting Jesus as my Lord and Savior to forgive me for my sin to change my life. And whatever he wants me to do, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to follow him as a picture of my trust in him, that he can call the shots, he can call the direction. Whatever he wants from me, I'm putting my trust in Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the power it has to change a human heart forever. We're thankful, Lord, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And for that man or woman or boy or girl this morning who wants you to save them, I pray this might be the moment, this might be the place, this might be the day where they would, with no holds barred, with complete abandon, trust themselves to you. Father, as we respond in these moments, we welcome your Holy Spirit here. We ask him to come and, and rule over us as a people of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.